0: in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hi,
2: I'm Leighton Hewitt, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Grand Slam singles title number 11 for Novak Djokovic as he draws level with Rod Laver and Bjorn Borg on 11 Grand Slam singles title. Heartbreak for Andy Murray yet again. Deja vu. Five finals and all of them he's been defeated in them. But Novak Djokovic, six Australian Open titles and myself David Law and Simon Briggs have been watching... And here we are on the Telegraph's Tennis Podcast, joined by a special guest today in John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated. And Simon Briggs, though, I'm sure we've been here before.
3: Yeah, it's not quite as one-sided as the 2011 final, but it wasn't as good, probably, as the two others that they've played. Um, Because once Andy went down in the first set, you know that Novak is the uh, ultimate front-runner these days. And once he's got a grip on the match... Uh, you have to be uh, some sort of divine conflation of Federer, Laver, Becker, I don't know what, what sort of ingredients it would take to, to, to come back after losing the first set to the Djokovic in one of these finals and, and win. I actually heard, John, somebody say to me the other day,
2: if only Andy Murray had got like Rafael Nadal's forehand and Pete Sampras's serve, he might be able to beat Novak Djokovic. I mean, that is what it feels like it takes now.
1: I think everyone's trying to figure out what it takes to beat this guy. He neutralizes pace. He goes from defense to offense. He doesn't miss. He serves well. I think Andy has some matchup problems here, but I think, as Simon said, getting off to a fast start. We saw that in the women's final last night. You rocked the champion a little bit in the early rounds. That could have been helpful. That did not happen. Andy went 22 minutes before he won his first game. And after that, Djokovic, such a strong front runner, rolled away after that.
2: What I don't understand, John, is you, you say that Andy Murray has some matchup problems against Novak Djokovic, and yet he beat him in two Grand Slam finals—the U.S. Open, then Wimbledon. Where? Why has this changed?
1: I think that's a great question. I mean, I think some of that is just these intangibles, right? It's, it's self-belief, and it's conviction, and it's courage. But go back and look at Djokovic. Even after he won the three majors in 2011 go look at his 2012 and now you look back and you say boy what was going on there i mean now we have a guy that's winning three majors a year as a matter of ritual what happened in a few of those the wimbledon final in 2012 as an example you know this is a guy who did not win a medal at the london games beaten twice and now that seems just just unfathomable i mean this guy is playing at a level higher than the rest of the field and i think the question now becomes boy that." That number 17 is is looking well within his grasp.
2: That, that's an extraordinary point, isn't it? That 17 is maybe within reach. I was looking up. It took 33 years for somebody to break Roy Emerson's record. Pete Sampras doing it. Suddenly Pete Sampras' achievement doesn't look that unbelievable. Uh, Simon Briggs, you've got something to say?
3: Well, I was just going to return to the previous point and say that the, the, the difference between those two slam finals he won and the, the ones he isn't winning comes down to two words for me. And the first word is Yvonne and the second word is Lendl. Um, but anyway, to move on to uh, Novak, I mean... Um, Do you want to explain I that? Back to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the forehand and the attitude, you know, those are the things which he had in 2012 and 2013... And he doesn't have them now. And they're things he's not, never been comfortable with He's never been comfortable with hitting his forehand. He's never been comfortable with, with taking the initiative rather than sort of looking for weaknesses and, and, and uh, finding chinks in opponent's armour. But uh, under Lendl, he was forced to, to feel uncomfortable by his kind of implacable coach. And since then, he's returned to something like his old ways. And there was a good stat on Channel 7 tonight. They said um, average forehand speeds. Uh, Andy Murray, it was all in KPH, I should say. Andy Murray, before uh, Ivan Lendl, averaged forehand speed 117 KPH at the Australian Open. During Lendl, 122 KPH. After Lendl, 116 KPH.
2: What do you make of that, John?
1: That's, That's an interesting... I had not looked at it that way. I mean, I think, honestly, this is a lot more about Djokovic's side of the net. But that is very interesting. And something does seem to be missing with Andy against Djokovic. I mean, he beat him, obviously in Canada last summer but you know that was a best of 3 match there was another masters event the next week in these big matches he just doesn't seem to have that extra gear I mean, it's hard to look at them and say what does andy do better the job, Andy is an exquisite returner. Djokovic is a little bit better. Their serves are probably a wash off the ground. Djokovic fitness. I mean, what does Andy Murray do? What does he have in his arsenal?
2: Isn't he more? Is isn't he physically more powerful as a human being? If they had an arm wrestle, Andy Murray would win it. And and isn't he therefore? I mean, there were stages in that second set where I thought actually he's starting to look like he's bullying Djokovic just a little bit. He couldn't get over the line there.
1: I think physically he would win in arm wrestling. I don't know how well that manifests itself on the court. And I think Djokovic is so strong at neutral. It must be so frustrating to play against a guy. I mean, we had some of these games, 9-11. There was a game that was nearly 12 minutes. Even when you win that game, in a way, it must be so strange. It must be so demoralizing to go through that kind of effort and toil and struggle just to win a game. And... You know, I mean, we all know how mental tennis can be. These are two guys that have known each other a long time. And as much as this is a rivalry, it's now very much in Djokovic's favor. And I, I think the Lendl comment is really interesting because, because something just seems to be a little bereft in this Murray-Djokovic. And I, I look at, the, you know, here's my stat. I, I like your uh, I like your, well, the your channel, KPMs. That was a good one. Sevens,
3: really. Here,
1: here's my stat of the night, which is the youngest player to have won a Masters 1000 event. So the youngest player who's won a big event that's not a major is Novak Djokovic there is no young talent that seems immediately obvious to challenge this guy Roger Federer bless him is in his mid-30s Rafael Nadal seems to be in decline Andy Murray doesn't have the number as of late and you say who is going to step up and challenge this guy because right now challengers are a uh, few and far between so where will that leave us
2: John do you think in terms of what how many this guy is going to ultimately accumulates.
1: You know, I mean, two years ago we were saying Nadal was going to, you know, Nadal was at 14 and he was going to catch Federer, and now there are a lot of people wondering if Nadal will get to 15. So plots can change. Will Milos Raonic, who looked very strong here and was very close to playing in this final instead of Andy Murray, will he be full health? You can imagine him doing some damage at Wimbledon. Will Stan Wawrinka emerge as he did at the French Open? I mean, a a lot can happen, but I think realistically... This Novak Djokovic is just playing at another level from the rest of the field.
2: Just just before we go back to Simon, he said the words Ivan Lendl are the biggest determining factor in this rivalry. Are those words not Boris Becker?
1: I think a lot of people were scratching their head. I mean, remember if, uh, if Djokovic doesn't win that Wimbledon in 2014, a lot of people think Boris Becker is, is no longer the coach. And since then, the record speaks for itself. I mean, for whatever reason, that relationship seems to work. I think unlike Murray Lendl, I think it's less immediately obvious what Boris is bringing to the table. I and mean, I think we all knew, I mean, look at how Andy talks between points. We never saw him yell at Lendl the way he yells at his box. I mean, there's sort of demonstrable differences. I'm not sure it's quite as, I mean, clearly it's working. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, but I'm not sure it's quite as apparent what Boris Becker is bringing.
2: I think, uh, Simon, in that speech at the end by Andy Murray, I mean, he's he's pretty much raced off court, hasn't he? He's made a very cursory appearance in the the press room. He wants to go home. He's had enough now. It's all, understandably, I think, just starting to overflow.
3: Yeah, uh, we knew he was going to make an early morning departure. We thought probably 3.30, but he's getting out at 1am. We actually made it quite clear in the press conference that he felt that his slow start was down to the amount of off-court issues he's having to deal with um, and that, that's been a factor all the way through the tournament and he hasn't managed to acclimatise going on court for matches as quickly as he would otherwise have done so you know that was that was his perspective um, on Novak I mean I, I think when we spoke after the US Open I said to you you know the, the Rafa and Roger have built a monster here the, the other thought that occurred to me today is that actually one of the most dangerous things about Novak is that people don't like him that much because if people really did like him, if people treated him like they've always treated Roger, he'd probably be a bit cozier. He probably wouldn't have as much to, to, to kick against all the time. But here he is coming from a little underdog country, and he's kind of still a little underdog somewhere in his head, and it's what keeps him improving all the time. so And he improves certain aspects of his game. but every time he does that, Novak does improve something else. the forehand today, you know Novak's forehand used to be slightly shaky. Um, to tonight, he killed Andy on the forehand side. Andy actually was probably slightly in the upper hand on the backhands, which was new. You know, normally, normally Novak's backhand is um, invulnerable, but, but he got slaughtered on the forehand. And that's, um, you know, Andy tactically went after the backhand because there's nowhere to go against Novak's forehand. He just keeps on getting better.
2: So we know who the men's champion is. We also know who the women's champion is, and it is Angelique Kerber. I was just about to say Serena Williams because I'm just so used to saying it. John, how big a shock was that?
1: I think our, our context is the U.S. Open, where Serena obviously lost in, in the semifinals to a player not of Kerber's caliber. So with that as context, it wasn't as quite as big an upset as what we saw in New York, but a, a sizable upset nonetheless. And I don't know if you, if you leave your...
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
2: sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking.
1: Here is Serena Williams. You've answered a lot of questions. For those middle rounds, she was terrific. I mean, this is as, as powerful, probably more accurate than she's been in a long time. And then big match, trophy in the corner of the court, and she just didn't get it done. And, you know, these things sometimes get harder to win the older you get. You say the window's closing. I have a finite number of slams left. I'm not sure where Serena leaves here. I mean, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know where she goes from here. I don't know what her mentality is leaving. She should be very pleased with her play in the middle. But, again, that match against Kerber was a match she's going to look back on when she takes stock and inventory of her career and say, how did I lose that?
2: How did she lose that? Yeah, absolutely. i tell you what, her demeanor afterwards, how... Um magnanimous she was how generous she was actually in her praise of her opponent, and and how happy she seemed to be for her and uh, and, and so forth it was a huge departure from the player that we saw maybe five or six years ago i mean do you remember after the the kim clijsters uh, match at the us open when she came in and she didn't want to she didn't want to hear about it from any of us when we were saying really you know you, you probably should be apologizing right now
1: this is seems to be a very different character we we all evolve and uh, I think a lot of people are, you know, I mean, this is this is someone who's won majors over a span of 15 years. But to those of us who recall, the ball cap pulled low over the face, and I played at 60% of my capacity, and I graded myself an F. And um, sometimes she could be quite withering in defeat to see her smile on her face, basically say, if, if it weren't me, I'm happy it's her, and all credit to her. At one point she said that Kerber was an inspiration. It, it was very heartening to see, and it was a, uh, a marked departure from, again, a long time ago. I mean, Kleister, is, we're talking eight, ten years ago, but um, it's 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 proof these athletes are people. They evolve. What did you make of all that,
3: Simon? I haven't
1: worked it out. I
3: mean, is she a different person? Look, you mentioned Kleister. What about um, the Vinci defeat when she barely could, could come out with a single sentence? Look, I understand that she was chasing a calendar grand slam on that occasion, whereas here... But here she was chasing Steffi's record. It's a big deal. I don't understand. Why are you completely at one end of the spectrum after Vinci, and completely at the other after Kerber? I, I do not have the faintest idea. I would mean, I'd I really be interested when I mean, John, you think that she's evolved? I, I never know what is going on in there.
1: I really don't. It, it's all part of the mystery. I, I would say a few. I mean, first of all, I thought last night's match was a much higher quality. I mean, that match against Vinci, she was barely mobile paralyzed by nerves i think the fact that this is happening in australia half a world away it's not in new york with celebrities in the stands and her sponsors there and prime time in the states i mean the fact that it's four in the morning a continent away and i think serena's at a point where at, at some level she knows she's in good standing she knows her place in the sport is secure and i, I thought that match from a quality standpoint the women's final was was quite good that that was a real difference between that and her loss in in new york
2: yeah i I thought angelique kerber was fantastic really i mean she she did not back down i think that was the biggest thing for me was that she came out and she was not intimidated she just soaked it up she said i'm not going to go anywhere i'm going to run every single ball down i thought she was a very worthy champion personally
3: Yes, I would agree. She played pretty much 95 percent of her capacity. You know, she played really top level for her capacity. I still think that if Serena was on, she would have got blown away. I mean, there were no serves coming down with Serena power on them. Um, the returns they were—they maybe uh, from Serena weren't too bad. I mean, Kerber did serve better than I thought she was going to. But um, you know, Serena didn't move her feet, did she? Put not properly, particularly early on, and then um, she kind of had this net rushing strategy which just didn't seem to pay off at all. So I felt like Kerber did a great job but couldn't have won it without a bit of complicity from the other end of the court, don't you think? Yeah, well, that's definitely true, I think. I think we all agree that
2: Serena Williams on top of a game is basically unbeatable in the women's game. What a what a player she is when she's at full throttle. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. Where does she go from here? Personally, I I just feel as though she's probably got to a stage in her life where she thinks, actually, you know what? I better I better relax a bit, otherwise I'm just going to go crazy. Because the, she looks like she was losing it in in New York. Understandably so, but the determination, the desperation to win, was so paralyzing. As you as you mentioned, I, I think she's just decided. I need to just take a, a step off it here. But interesting, interesting final. I thought she would win that one because of that reason.
3: I mean, I mean uh, it's not unusual for players to actually be, be comparatively warm in press conferences when they lose. That is something which we do see from a wide variety of players. In fact, Andy traditionally has always been quite good after he loses because they do have a release of pressure, and maybe that's what happened with Serena, but it's just a, it is a different um, reaction than I've seen from her in the past. But yeah, I think maybe you're, maybe you're right that she realised that the point she reached in New York was just unsustainable.
2: Uh, just a, a quick Britfest note here. Jamie Murray, nice nice scenes for him last night, wasn't it, that he won that doubles title finally one in the morning? Seemed a bit of a shame. There were about 80 people in the stands, including his brother at one in the morning.
3: Well, at least they were all shouting for for Jamie. Most of them seem to be poms. Uh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, I, I sat here with Jamie t- three years ago in the interview room, uh, 20 yards from where we're standing now, and he was at the point of quitting um he didn't know what the hell that he was going to do with his life and three years later he's well on the way to being number one in doubles so that is a transformation for the ages and i guess andy played a part in that um mrs jamie murray played a part in that judy murray played a part in that it's the strong network that these guys have around them and, and they're all working together and creating something special in british tennis
2: and victory for gordon reed as well from a british perspective in the wheelchair singles john you are now going to go back and wait for Novak Djokovic to come to the press room. I think he might have quite a wait. He has to do the rounds. Um, h- how much uh, writing will you be doing for, for Sports Illustrated and the website over the next couple of days? Will this, will this make major waves that Novak Djokovic is heading towards the sort of numbers he is? Is it Serena Williams that is the, the big story? Because, of course, she was the, the Sports Person of the year from Sports Illustrated re- recently, wasn't she?
1: She was, and, you know, the Australian Open, I-, I don't know how it is in the U.K., it's always a strange event in the U.S. I mean, it goes on at you know, 3, 4 in the morning, and the-, the days are screwy, and it's in the middle of football, and the Super Bowl is a week from now. It tends to get lost in the folds a little bit, and I, I think if Serena had won, she would have tied Steffi, she would have made this, this great comeback after this, this dismal U.S. Open, I'm not sure Novak Djokovic. You mentioned his his popularity. I'm not sure the demand for Novak Djokovic is is still quite what it,
2: it probably ought yeah, to. What, be. what does U.S. make U.S. Uh, readers make of it? Do you, of him, do you think?
1: It's a good question. I mean, we we all have our theories. Um, you know, we we see this at the U.S. Open. We see this this animated pretty vividly. He's he's not Roger. He's not Rafa. He's not you know the fresh faced American kid. And I think fans. Remember those stupid impersonations? I, I wish those impersonations had never happened. I mean, this was—it's like the Williams sisters and the beads. I mean, it happens when you're young, and it gets sort of in. It's, it's like a viral video, it kind of. Don't you kind of miss and, that though a little bit? That I, little bit of personality, that little bit of edge. I do, but I—but I feel like it, it kind of bit him. And he became known as the uh, the impersonation guy, and was it disrespectful? And had he earned the license to do this? And I mean, we're you know, we're going on ten years ago that this happened, and I feel like that that's still something that he's living down to an extent. And I mean I think the issue of Djokovic's popularity and the fact that he's you know, admired but maybe not endeared is really sort of an interesting topic. I mean it's hard to come up. With authentic reasons not to like the guy, and yet the connection with the public, at least in the US, just is not where it ought to be.
2: Greatness often tends to sort that out, though, doesn't it? In the passage of time, do you not think? If he gets silly numbers?
1: I think if he gets silly numbers, yes. I mean, I think there are all sorts of, of twists here. I mean, I, the, the aesthetics of Roger probably aren't there, and, and Nadal just sort of this, this tennis cognate that Nadal plays isn't quite there and sometimes sheer greatness cuts the other way where uh, you know americans love their underdogs and we love the unexpected and it it almost is is sort of groff like and when he starts you know when, when he starts to lose and the the train's headed down the hill then he'll have the popularity he should have had when he was at the peak of his powers
2: gentlemen it's been lovely to have you here with us on the tennis podcast in association with the Telegraph. Simon, you can go home soon, can't you? You can actually have a proper night's sleep one of these days. I'm not flying out quite as quickly as Andy.
3: (laughs) I'll be uh, 24 hours after him, I'll be there.
2: Simon Briggs, you'll be able to read his stuff on telegraph.co.uk forward slash sport. You can read John Wertheim on the Sports Illustrated website. Tell you what... Also, have a listen to his podcast, Beyond the Baseline. John Wertham has his own podcast, and he has some great guests on it. I listened to the Mario Ancic one a, a few weeks ago. Do go and get hold of that one if you can. Really fascinated to hear his story, wasn't it? What a life he's leading
1: in New York. He's, he's doing well for himself. Uh, pe- people remember him, I think, foremost as uh, the guy who beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon. I think they'll be hearing about him again. I, th- I think he's one of these figures who's going to return to tennis in some leadership capacity pretty soon here.
2: That'd be great to see, wouldn't it? Lovely to speak to you both. Thank you all for listening to us over the duration of the two weeks of the Australian Open. We've had a blast, and we'll speak to you soon.